1: We have a big meeting coming up, or at least announcement, uh, tomorrow. Today, the Fed uh, begins its two-day monthly meeting, or I guess not monthly, 10 times a year. Um, I want to bring in Ira Jersey. He's chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And before we look ahead to what we're expecting from the Federal Reserve tomorrow, I want to talk about this inflation data that we got out this morning. Uh, Inflation accelerating to its highest in six years, and yet not a wholesale cheer Uh, necessarily from markets. Why?
2: Yeah, a couple of things, Lisa. I think one is that the... Um, The market was expecting the numbers that we received, and I think one of the reasons why you have um, certainly interest rates near where they are, you know, 10-year yield right close to 3% yet again after the big risk-off we had two weeks ago is because we are expecting inflation to kind of hover with core inflation at uh, just over 2%. So, um, you know, you have that plus a risk premium on top of that, and and that gets you to close to 3%, and that's where um, we're we're likely to hover for for a little while. it does have big implications for the economy, though, because when one of the things that, that we calculate based on this inflation data is what are real wages. So what are wages minus inflation? And those have been coming down uh, from, from, a, uh, from a high last month. So, um, so that's something we have to keep track of is, is, you know, will spending be able to be kept up if inflation
1: continues to rise? So how will the Fed view this?
2: Yeah. So so I think the Fed is going to say, okay, this is evidence that what we're doing is the right policy path because we've been hiking, you know, irregularly, but certainly consistently. And as such, we, you know, we we're trying to get inflation under control. We don't want inflation to be significantly above where it is today. Um, But, you know, it, it says that their gradual path hasn't really disrupted the economy, but it also hasn't yet brought inflation and inflation expectations down very much. So until it does that, I think that they're going to continue to be uh, reasonably hawkish.
1: So right now I'm looking at the expectations that are being priced into the futures market uh, for a Fed rate hike tomorrow. It is pretty much 100% chance of a rate hike tomorrow. Um, I think the more interesting thing that we can hear from the Fed is guidance for the rest of the year, for next year. And uh, there's been some speculation that the Fed might hint that it would be willing to slow or curtail its balance sheet normalization. Uh, if the economy didn't accelerate more. Have you heard about that? What do you make of that?
2: Yeah, so so certainly one or two um, one or two economists have have suggested that maybe the um, the Fed might consider slowing the, the pace of adjustment. I think part of the reason for that is that you've seen the Fed funds market start to creep up toward the interest that the Fed pays on excess reserves, and because of that, they're thinking, oh well, that means that money markets are very tight, and because money markets are tight, we should maybe not reduce the balance sheet as much. I'm not convinced that it's really it's portfolio runoff that's doing. Doing this. There's a lot of other factors that are involved in the pricing of Fed funds and, and other short-end uh, short rates. So, for example, right now, there's a lot of Treasury bills in the market because of the fiscal stimulus. The Treasury Department's issued a lot of them. So, that's caused almost every single front-end interest rate to move a bit higher than it had been prior to this year. Yeah. So, it, it's not that the Fed can really do much about it, except maybe lower, um, it, not hike interest paid on reserves by as much as they uh, they, they do their uh, their range of where they want to keep the Fed funds rate.
1: You know, I'm glad that you mentioned bills. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the Treasury auctions uh, this week. There are nearly two hundred billion dollars of uh, debt auctions. Most of them are bills. Uh, the 10 year auction of a coupon debt yesterday went really well. Today yeah. we have more bill sales. How are the bill sales going and who is buying?
2: Yeah, so the, so the bill sales have really been uh, um, been up and down. And, and in particular, what's been really good is actually six-month bills, which which a little bit surprises me, because when we don't know if the Federal Reserve is going to hike perhaps two times over the next couple of months or one time over the next couple of months, you know, why lock in for six months when you can just do a four-week bill or a three-month bill and be able to capture an additional Fed hike if, if the Fed happens to hike uh, in both June and September? Um, so, so, so demand's good. Who's buying? It's it's mostly uh it's mostly end users. So when you look at, at who's purchasing those longer term securities, it's um it's uh, uh investment funds and, and the like, the, the front end bills, the four week bills, tend to go to dealers and then the dealers then um then sell them on to other other investors such as money market funds and, and uh and just cash equivalent investors.
1: Um, I do want to just bring you some headlines. Uh, just crossing the Senate panel voted uh, 24 and five against uh, Rich Clarida for uh, his nomination as Fed vice yeah, chair. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Senate panel also voted 18 four seven against for Bowman for his uh, Fed nomination. Do you think that any of these uh, sort of changes to the composition of the Federal Reserve will affect uh, sort of the direction no. of policy?
2: I, I don't think so. I think Richard Clarida, in particular, is is a pretty mainstream um, uh, mainstream economist. I think that he'll look at the economy where it's going and how policy might uh, might impact both markets and and importantly the economy. And as such, he'll um, you know he's not going to really rock the boat as much as some other people that we maybe thought um, that that President Trump might might actually pick. Um, you know, he's not a particularly hawkish or dovish person. Um, you know, when uh, you know. You've spoken to him. I've spoken to him. He's really a reasonable, uh, a reasonable person when it comes and, and a real monetary policy expert. So I think when, when it comes to things like changes in the balance sheet composition, he'll be one person that they'll definitely lean on for his opinion as to uh, you know, what size the balance sheet should be or the pace of reduction yeah. there.
1: Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Great insight ahead of the announcement tomorrow from the Federal Reserve, as well as all of the Treasury auctions the first two days of this week. This is a confusing U.S. economy. While it is very strong now, certainly a growing number of traders are saying perhaps this is as good as it gets. And how do you maneuver? given the fact that the hangover uh, from the uh, really incredible expansion that we've seen could be potentially dramatic. Joining us now, Ben Hunt. He is chief investment strategist at Salient, which manages about $13 billion and is focused on real assets. Uh, Ben Hunt is also the author of EpsilonTheory.com, and uh, it has uh, 100... Thousand professional investors as regular readers. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I want to start with how you're viewing the economy right now, because on one hand, you're seeing U.S. inflation at six years six year highs. You're seeing uh, wages that are not keeping up uh, to the degree that people would like to see. A Federal Reserve that's hiking. Where Where are you thinking as far as uh, the sort of risk appetite that you're willing to make?
0: Well, it's great to be on again, Lisa. Thank, thanks for having me. And I, I think you put your finger on. What is the real? Uh, I'll use a ten dollar word. Dichotomy, you know, it's this is this real uh, fracture that we're seeing between the real economy and what I'll call the market economy. You know, what's happening in the in the in the stock market. And look, you know, for the last nine years, we've had a stock market that has really rocked, and uh, a and a real economy, particularly here in the U.S. It's been meh, right. And and what what I think you're seeing today is that that's really been turned on its head, right? So you've got a real economy that is starting to, to, to really pick up here. And we can talk about signs of that and what's driving that. But at the same time, you're, you're seeing the markets, you're kind of looking meh, right? And, and what I'm trying to say is that's not an accident, right? We've had this split in this, this, this dichotomy between the real world, the real economy and markets for about nine years now. Yeah. And now it's really flipping on its head.
1: Well, you know, I, I want to just push back a little bit because I sure. think that uh, when you talk about the real economy, what are you looking at? Because, you know, there are signs that, you know, there still is a, a large swath of people that have been left behind in the recovery because there has been so much focus on the stock market and, you know, assets that only the wealthiest people are really heavily invested in. And so I'm just wondering, you know, what's where are you yeah. getting the sense it's going to accelerate?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, what, what I mean by the real economy, I'm really focusing on uh, small and medium businesses here in the United States. I see. You know, we got some 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 new data out today you know the i'll call it the confidence the the intention to grow uh, the intention to spend the intention to hire from small businesses which still are the economic backbone of this country of our real economy you know that confidence at least for intention to grow it's never been higher since they've been taking this survey, and they've been taking it for a long time. Now, look, I totally agree with you that there are so many people that have been left behind in what I'll call the inflation we have had over the last nine years, which is an inflation in asset prices. So we're seeing wealth inequality return to levels we haven't seen since the 1930s. And that has enormous consequences, particularly in politics. But what I'm talking about with the real economy, I'm talking about small to medium businesses here in the United States, and their perception, their intention has never been more growth-oriented, new hiring, new expansion, all of that. That's what I'm talking about with the real economy.
1: So how are you uh, capitalizing on that? How are you investing around that? Well,
0: look, it, it really means you know, thinking about how to invest your money away from the public markets that have been the beneficiary of what I'll call the monetary stimulus. You know, central banks buying everything in sight for the last nine years. And now, how do you think about, well, what if that gets turned on its head with the Fed now shrinking its balance sheet with the tide going out on the monetary stimulus, but at the same time, you've got fiscal stimulus in the form of tax cuts You've got, and I know this sounds weird, but as the Fed normalizes interest rates from this very low base, I think that's actually stimulative, yeah. again, to these small and medium businesses. And third, I don't think you can overestimate, I really don't, what I call is the Donald Trump narrative. That, you know, whatever the the reality is, there is a perception that there's enormous uh, change afoot, uh, particularly in forms of deregulation. All of those things benefiting... The, the, the mindset, let's call it, the expe- expectations of small to medium businesses. So what do you do for that, for, inv- for investing? Well, look, you can certainly look at private markets as opposed to public markets, but you can also look at value as, uh, compared to growth, and you can look at you know, the Russell 2000, which tends to, doesn't tend, it, it's comprised of those smaller cap stocks which tend to match or mimic those smaller to medium businesses in the real economy.
1: But Ben, one thing that I'm struck by is that the Russell 2000 has actually outperformed the S&P yeah. 500 dramatically this year. I mean, it's almost double. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering how much is left.
3: Look,
0: I I think there's a lot left. Frankly, right? Because I I think there's been such a pent up I'll call it demand, but it's it's there there's such a pent up energy in the small and medium businesses in this country uh, that I think this can go on for quite a long time. Now, look, ultimately, mistakes will be made, right? The Fed will hike rates to, you know, an, an interest rate hike too far. Ultimately, we will get, really, inflation starting to kick in, which hits the margins not just of, you know, big companies, but also small and medium companies. That, that, that's all going to happen. Right. But right now, We're at this phase where these small to medium businesses are really picking their heads up and are intending to spend, expand, and that can do well for stocks that represent that.
1: Ben, what do you think is the biggest thing that investors are getting wrong right now?
0: (laughs) You know, the, the, the biggest thing they're getting wrong, in my view, is that we are still trapped in this perception that we live in a deflationary world Forever and ever, amen, just as far as the eye can see. And, you know, frankly, this has been the right bet for 40 years, right, right. That, that we have been in this deflationary, rates-are-always-going-down type of world. What I'm trying to suggest is, is that when these big-picture items like, are we in an inflationary world or deflationary world, when these ideas change, is it moments just like this? Because it's driven by change in politics It's driven by a change in the mindset, the expectations, particularly of small to medium businesses. So I think there's a, you know, I'll use another $10 phrase, a non-trivial chance that we're at the cusp of a big shift here in the investment environment, our business environment, and that's moving from a world where it's deflation all the time to where we really have to start flexing those, how do you invest in an inflationary market all over again?
1: Ben Hunt, thank you so much for joining me. Really, really interesting. Ben Hunt, Chief Investment Strategist at Salient. Salient manages about $13 billion. It's focused on real assets. Ben also is the author of a blog, EpsilonTheory.com. Markets have been struggling to figure out the real world impact from the increasing trade tensions between the U.S. and other major economies. One place, though, uh, where perhaps we'll be able to see that is with tourism. And uh, the question is, has tourism to the United States declined. Joining us now, Chris Thompson, President and Chief Executive Officer of Brand USA. It is a federal agency uh, that focuses on trying to attract international uh, travelers to the U.S. Chris, thank you so much for being with me.
3: Hey, good morning. My pleasure.
1: Good morning. So I'd love to get your sense of exactly this, whether or not fewer tourists are coming to the U.S. as a response of uh, to the growing tension that, that, that has frankly, erupted between President Trump and and some of these uh, longstanding allies?
3: You know, we have seen some softness in uh, international visitation to the United States. That was uh, after... Uh, record visitation for six straight years, but the majority of that actually happened uh, prior to the election. The, mar- the majority of the reasons for that happened prior to the election and have really been influencing since then, the main thing being the strength of the dollar. Uh, you know, you look at markets like Canada, Mexico, and others, you know, when the dollar is strong, it obviously makes it uh, a little more challenging for folks looking to travel to the United States. So that has been the case for. Uh, an extended period of time at, at uh, levels that have been uh, higher than normal. So I think that's contributed significantly. Uh, some of our, uh, you know, some of the things that affect people's uh, intent to travel and their willingness to travel are what's affecting them back home. So a lot of economic, political, social tensions back home also influence intent to travel. So not sure you can really peg it on uh, the things that are happening at the moment. Um, you know, the beautiful thing about travel is it really has the ability to transcend, uh, politics. It's you know, about destinations experiences and and us as Americans. And, you know, we know once people travel to the United States and they can immerse themselves in our destinations and and they get the feel from us as Americans uh, uh, as far as as being some of the most welcoming people in the world, that that has the ability to to kind of rise above all that.
1: Did you notice an uptick in uh, visitors, international visitors to the U.S. earlier this year when the dollar weakened?
3: Yeah, you know, there was some um, some moderation within the dollar, so uh, it was hard to tell. So the numbers that we get are uh, lagging numbers from the Department of Commerce. So I'm not sure we'll really know the true impact on what are final numbers uh, as a result of that, but we did see some some uh, increases in, in numbers uh, going into 2017, which was encouraging. And a lot of that, as you pointed out, had to do with the fact that the dollar was weakening a bit. But I think now it's maybe – heading back in the other direction. And, And so it just depends on where that all lands.
1: Can you give us some perspective on how important tourism is to the U.S. economy?
3: So most people don't realize that travel is actually an export. The product is the uh, experience people have, the memories they take home. Uh, As an export, it's a service export, so 33% of everything the United States exports that's a service is tied to people coming here, uh, having the experiences and leaving their money. 11% of everything the largest economy in the world exports is tied to people traveling to the United States, enjoying themselves and, and leaving their money behind. You know, you look at uh, balance of trade. Trade is obviously a big topic right now. Uh, In 2016, the last time we had uh, annual numbers, we had 76 million people spend $245 billion, and that was an $84 billion positive contribution to the balance of trade. So when you look at it as an economic engine, it's certainly a huge contributor. And then on the soft diplomacy side, we know that, as I said earlier, once people – have a chance to come and experience the United States. They always walk away with uh, a more positive uh, opinion of it, whatever their opinion was coming in.
1: Uh, Chris, uh, last year there were a number of stories that came out saying that uh, President Trump's budget eliminated funding for Brand USA and would effectively uh, kill the organization. Have you heard more about that? What was your response?
3: You know, any time a president comes in, uh, the the way for them to make a statement of priority is through a budget. Uh, and so, obviously, there were a lot of priorities. There's never enough money in Washington to do everything that everybody wants to do. Uh, so the good news is that the people that actually appropriate are Congress. Uh, Congress, we have a tremendous uh, bipartisan, strong majority relationship uh, as far as support in Congress. Uh, when Congress actually got to the business of appropriations, uh, our funding stayed intact. Uh, as, as budgets were moved forward. So uh, though we would have liked it, liked it to have been a different uh, situation as far as the president's budget, we understand uh, that it is a statement of priorities and it's a, a way to navigate a situation where there's really never enough, enough funding.
1: Just a uh, real quick, what is how exactly do you market the U.S. to international investors?
3: So uh, our job is to reach out to uh, all the markets around the world. Uh, we're... Uh, We're headquartered here in Washington, D.C. We're actually a private company that's in partnership with the federal government. We have 15 offices around the world. We take uh, uh, messages direct to consumers. And in this year, 2018, our theme is music. Before there were destination marketing organizations like brand usa the way people found out about us was through movies and music and uh, we just released a imax film called america's musical journey which documents the heritage of american music and the cities that uh, it was founded in and tells a story about how uh, uh, that is is a great way to talk about the United States of America and what there is to see and do through music. So our job is to be storytellers, to inspire travel uh, from our friends and visitors from around the world, and in the end, to really remind them why they want to come to the United States, right. why it is the most aspirational destination in the world.
1: Chris Thompson, thank you so much for being with me. President and Chief Executive Officer of Brand USA coming to us from Washington, D.C. One notable thing about this week, which uh, some have dubbed the most important week of the year, is that markets just don't care. They have not cared about the uh, Trump-Kim Jong-un summit. Uh, They haven't necessarily cared about the inflammatory rhetoric out of the G7 meetings. Here we had inflation data that came out pretty much in line with expectations. No one cared. The Fed's going to raise rates tomorrow. Meh and then the ECB meets, Evan Brown joins us now to see uh, what will make him care and change potentially his views on the market right now. Evan Brown is director of asset allocation uh, as part of the investment solutions team for UBS Asset Management, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So Evan, what will make people care, sort of change their strategies uh, that's coming out potentially this week?
4: Yeah, so I think I mean if anything is gonna gonna make us care, it's it should be the two most important central banks, arguably at least in the develop in developed markets, the Fed and the ECB this week. So um, I think for the Fed, we are going to get a hike. We're finally going to get to it's- a.
1: It's 100% priced in at this it's point. It's 100% yes.
4: priced in. But of course, right after that, you'll get the summary of economic projections. Everyone will be wanting to looking at at the the forecast. What the dots. The Fed think? The dot. People
1: still care about the dots.
4: People still care about the dots. Uh, and people will say, oh, the Fed is moving to four hikes or or, or in 2018, maybe they're moving their, uh, their forecast for 2019 as well. And Chair Powell is going to do everything he can to de-emphasize those dots. That's something that he wants to do is is move the Fed away from forward guidance right. and more towards data dependence, which I think is is healthy. It gets us focused on the economy. And and look, I think one of the reasons why uh, the markets haven't been so focused on some of the other geopolitical risks right now is that the economic news is, is, is pretty good. Right. So uh, let's focus on that. The Fed will want to focus us on that. And, uh, and, and that really is what should be guiding uh, markets broadly.
1: You know, there has been some speculation as people try to spice up uh, this week's meetings that perhaps the Fed would signal that they're willing to curtail their balance sheet normalization uh, if they got a little bit concerned about a lack of acceleration in economic data. Is that pie in the sky or do you think that that's a real discussion?
4: I, I don't think that's a real discussion. The Fed is on <laughs> All right, the Fed is on autopilot. I know the the Reserve Bank of India governor was was calling on the Fed to to slow down its pace of oh, normalization, yeah. uh, but the, there is a very very high bar for doing that. The Fed is on on auto, autopilot with the balance sheet. They'll use rates as their as their main policy lever.
1: All right. So how are you positioning right now? And when was the last time you changed your positioning? <laughs>
4: yeah. So um, so look, we're we're broadly broadly constructive on on risk appetite on on risky assets. So we we uh, you know like global equities. I think you know more recently we pivoted a little bit more toward the U.S. and away from Europe and Japan. Uh, clearly, we had. The Italian risks uh, rise over the over the last few weeks, and and those are non non-neglig- negligible. Non negligible. I know they they've kind of disappeared a little bit from the headlines, but um, you know I think in September you're going to get this Italian the, the budget from from the new Italian government, and if that is in any way in line with what uh, the the new government has promised in terms of fiscal stimulus rising by five to seven percent of GDP. That's going to put them on a real collision course with with the EU. So I know we all say that uh, look, Italy ultimately will stay in the EU. Um, there will be market pressure growing in September uh, as this collision course, uh, you know, g- starts to starts to build here.
1: You're not alone in favoring the U.S. over Japan and Europe. In fact, Bank of America Merrill Lynch put out a fund manager survey today that showed that 64 of people who responded to the survey think the U.S. has the most favorable outlook for profits. That is a 17-year high. So does that, does that give you a little bit of angst, the fact that this has become a consensus trade at a time, especially with the uh, fan mag. The the big tech stocks in the U.S. Uh, being at such high high levels right now.
4: Yeah, no, I mean we always we always want to be focused on what's consensus, and uh, that obviously raises questions. You you don't want to be positioned the same way that that everyone else is, and you have to be hyper focused on the the risks or catalysts that could lead to an unwind of that. Um, at the same time, you cannot ignore what is an extraordinarily strong economy, what are extraordinarily strong earnings, uh, so. Yeah, it's hard, and and ultimately, if we do get a downturn, in the end, uh, it's going to be those those foreign markets that that get hit hardest. You know, okay, the, the Europe well, and Japan, emerging markets, are higher beta than the U.S. So the U.S. is a relative safe haven.
1: Do you think that some of the distress that we've seen in emerging markets is just the beginning?
4: Uh, I don't. I think I think we're we're coming to the end. You will have uh, specific countries, specific spots, kind of blow up at any given moment, um, but. Broadly in emerging markets, I think what you're seeing is uh, some of these uh, central bankers in these economies, they increasingly realize that they need to shore up their system. So you're seeing uh, uh, Brazil's central bank intervene in foreign exchange markets. You're seeing Turkey. You're seeing India. These central banks are, are hiking. They, they get it. They realize that as the Fed is tightening, uh, that they need to protect themselves. And at the same time, one way in which you know this EM, quote unquote, Crisis or, or or sell off is different from previous ones. Is that you know China's doing pretty pretty right. well. China's growth is is, is quite strong, uh, so that keeps us from getting too bearish on EM here.
1: So, when was the last time that you changed your recommendations for asset allocation?
4: Uh, we've tilted a little bit here and there, but in terms of having a broadly constructive outlook on risk and uh, on equities and and a short duration view globally. Um, it's been a while.
1: Well, I mean, and, and as far as the little tinkers, is it sort of more cash here, less duration here? Is it that type of idea?
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, one one thing that I think is becoming increasingly important for us and, and uh, global asset allocators is that as the Fed is hiking rates, the short end of the yield curve, or cash, is increasingly an attractive right. option. So, um, you know, we think about ways in which you want to move to the shorter end of the yield curve. You know, there's a there's a decent argument. Why do you want to be uh, earning, say, 290 on the 10 year and be taking all that volatility, inflation risk, duration risk when you can uh, park your funds in, in the two year yield at, at about 250? Is it is it worth it to be out there? So I think if there's if there's any shift, which I think we'll continue to see, it's, it's just moving shorter duration uh, across, you know, most of our U.S. investments.
1: Is anyone leveraging up two-year treasury yields right now?
4: <laughs> not that I know of.
1: Because <laughs> I'm really, I was having a conversation with a trader yesterday, and, and we were asking this question, you know, at a certain point, if you're getting, you know, four and a half percent on junk bonds, you're getting, you know, the triple C version of the of the spectrum outperforming dramatically, why not just lever up two-year yields? True. I don't I know. <laughs> you no,
4: know, I think there's there's something to be said for that. The The... The risk there is that if you do get inflation accelerating and the Fed hiking a lot more aggressively than is currently priced, then that that leaves you vulnerable. You have a problem.
1: Evan Brown, thank you so much for being here. Really great. Uh, Evan Brown, Director of Asset Allocation, is part of the Investment Solutions team of UBS Asset Management.